this is it. <clears throat> this is uh, this part two of uh, Mike Lemon interview on the Madness Continues podcast. <laughs> I decided to name my podcast that because it doesn't, I just feel like it doesn't make any, there's no rhyme or reason to anything that happens. And it's funny because when you look back, part of the you reason. You mean I, in all of life or just during these interviews? <laughs> no, I mean either one. <laughs> But part of the reason I wanted to sit down, <clears throat> I think, and talk with you, Dad, is I feel like it, no, no, nothing that's nothing that happens almost makes any sense while it's happening. But uh, when you ha- upon reflection, I think you can start to notice, like, oh, that's why those things happened, or that's why I did that, or that's why those things had turned out that way. Um, and I thought this would be interesting to go through because, like you said, and you ended the last time we sat down with talking about how. You left the job that you were working at Chatham, which was making you really good money, and started getting to work basically on a boat around the Great Lakes, uh, making like less than a third of what you had made. Yeah, it was about half, actually. About half is what I was making. And the point that you made, though, that I thought was really good was you said it takes some kind of faith sometimes that you have to kind of leap into the idea that hopefully this is all kind of just going to work out. Yeah, well, that was exactly right. Yeah, although I, well, I meant there are moments during that first stage of the career that um, you know I contemplated maybe I need to go back and do something else because uh, you know I wasn't making all that much money. And uh, but so be it. It was all right. You know, I mean, it's one of the ironies where oftentimes you can love the work you do, but the pay isn't very commensurate with the. <laughs> The quantity of love for what you're doing. I mean, you just described stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. So, in the whole 16 years I've been getting on stage and telling jokes, I think I, I've made like maybe five hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. If I had been a better comic, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so you were working at QED then, and we'll just kind of pick it. I think up where we were at because you you were working at QED. You had left this job at Chatham, where you had friends who had stayed. We saw them the other day. And, uh, and then you were, you were there for like five years where you, and, and had gone around most of the Great Lakes on this tiny boat that you had to stay sometimes two or three days on. Right. And doing basically core samples at the bottom of the lake. Um, you almost died in a giant typhoon on Lake Erie. (laughs) And, uh, well, anyway, you know, so we spent a lot of time on that boat, but that was really only during the summer months. So. The rest of the year, um, early spring and late fall, there might be Corps of Engineer work. And um, and then we did a lot of industrial work. And much of the industrial work was sampling sewer wastewater. And you'd literally have to set up sampling devices that would collect wastewater flowing through the sewer at set intervals, like every half hour, every hour, a big oh, automatic <laughs> device. But it was kind of nasty work. Um, you know, for slightly more than minimum wage. <laughs> and you can imagine popping manholes in downtown Detroit and everything is flowing through the sewer. Oh, my so, gosh. Yeah. Did you ever see any alligators? No, but I have seen some giant cockroaches. Oh, no, man. <laughs> yeah, giant. So, uh, but some of that work, you know, we did was still outdoors. And I remember a couple of specific incidents. We did a, a job for the Corps of Engineers through the Michigan's Inland Water Route, which is a, a connection of lakes and rivers or glorified streams between Sheboygan and Petoskey, which runs across 
Michigan's um, up, uh, upper portion of the southern peninsula. And that work this is was a Michigan done. geography lesson to yes, right, everybody yeah. in Kingston, Jamaica, and India. So, you know, the, that inland water route allowed boats up to about 60 feet to cut. Oh, wow. Instead of going around the tip of Michigan, um, they could cut across that section and save themselves some time. And um, so, anyway, the, the Corps would dredge that on rare occasion, and they were getting set to do that again. So, we had to go back and do some sampling and again using bonar dredges and and all the same sampling devices except on a much smaller boat and uh wait even then the tiny african queen that you had yeah, the african queen before? at 30 feet was too large for that kind of work <laughs> so we had um essentially a glorified <laughs> rowboat that had an outboard engine on it, it like a nine horsepower if that maybe it was even less and um you know and it was it was like middle of march so the River was clear because the water was warm enough that things hadn't totally frozen up. There was ice along the edges, but the lakes and the rivers were essentially kind of open. So we were able to do our sampling as we needed to um, throughout that chain of, of st streams and, and lakes. And we got done for the day. We went back and uh, pulled up to the dock, and the water level was a little low. So I was essentially handing gear uh, out of the boat up to my partner, Jim. <laughs> Yeah. standing above me on the dock uh -huh. and i'd hand up stuff and he'd grab it and everything else and um we got all that stuff up and then i was taking off the outboard motor and, and you know it's somewhat heavy and a little awkward to get off so i got it off stood up and handed it up and i felt what i thought was him grabbing the motor <laughs> so i let go and he hadn't really grabbed it at all i'm not sure what happened but the motor went you know dropped and fell right into the water between in the gap between the boat in the and the gap dock between the boat and the dock and laid there right on the crystal clear water bottom and we could see it quite clearly but i couldn't reach it because i attempted to reach it and uh so you know in a panic i you know i had to get this I had to get this darn motor out and not really engaging all the neurons at one time i decided the quickest thing was to put on the waders, wade out into this ice-cold water, and uh, grab the boat, uh, grab the grab the motor. So as I waded out, I realized... Which makes, I mean, that makes the logic of, the quick logic of that actually makes sense. Yeah, so, well, the problem is the water was so crystal clear that um, it looked shallower than it actually was. was. <laughs> so very quickly I realized that, that that motor is about seven feet deep. Oh, no. And I'm now holding on to the edge of the dock as i get out there and i can't i can barely touch stretching out i can barely touch the uh, motor with my foot and i obviously can't even hook it to get it lifted up with my foot so i figured one quick plunge under i'll grab the motor stand back up jim will grab my arm and that's the plan you know so three two one down i went well if you've never entered ice cold water uh what happens is when you're when your waders fill instantly and you're surrounded by ice cold water, your body has a natural reaction to sh to pinch down all of the blood flow to your arms and legs. Yeah, that's a survival mechanism. And uh, so I instantly lost all muscle control for my arms and legs. And Jim, looking down, realized that something didn't look quite right. <laughs> so he then dropped to the to the uh, dock. Uh, level and reached down and grabbed the suspenders on my 
waders and was able to pull me up through the water and then drag me back along the, the you know walking along the dock till it got shallow enough oh that i could stand on my own you're just filled with freezing cold water filled with freezing cold water oh my and, god you know it's just cold enough outside i mean it was maybe 30 degrees because uh, this is you know six six o'clock at night by the time we were done so temperatures were dropping again and uh <laughs> got to the waders off you know got them got out of the waders now my clothes are freezing to me <laughs> I, you know walked like uh, uh like frankenstein or a zombie back to the car because i couldn't bend my knees now that the pants it was just were too cold yeah well the pants were frozen so i <clears throat> got in the truck got it started and stayed there and it fortunately warmed up pretty quickly but jim had to then load the rest of the stuff and we left the motor at the bottom of the river <laughs> So we uh, went back to the hotel room, consumed many beers, trying to figure out what to do. And, and, you know, in my panic, I just never did. So the next morning we went back um, and uh, all of a sudden I'm like, well, what the heck? We got all this rope. We got these hooks. I'll just dri- hook the motor and pull it out. And sure enough, it took about 10 seconds to hook it. <laughs> it out and uh you know just why didn't i think of this last <laughs> night saved myself all the agony that i went through and, and the motor had historically not run well to start with so i pretty much figured letting it soak overnight in the river it was going to be the kiss of death for this thing <laughs> and it was never going to run right again and uh, but we got the motor back and i figured well uh, I, i'll have to tell my boss what happened when we get back, if I can't, if the motor isn't ever going to run again, I'm going to have to admit to what the hell I did. And it probably means I have to go buy another motor. And, you know, when you're making five and a quarter an hour oh, no. and a motor costs, you know, $1,000 or more back then for a, I don't know what this thing was, like a five horsepower motor or something. Uh, you know, it's going to take take a big hit on your uh, income. So we hooked the thing up back at the uh, office in... Um, you know, we had a rack that we put motors on because we had two or three different types. And, uh, you know, we had a, a 55-gallon drum and filled with water so you could run these things to tune them up and stuff. Yeah. So I'm like, this thing is probably ain't never going to run again. But, you know, you got it hooked up. Let's um, let's see what happens here. Just to get it started before. Uh, and, and sure, I, the first pull, the thing fired up and never ran better. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like it needed that soaking overnight in ice cold water to get it to yeah. straighten out. Yeah. It ran great, and it ran great from then on. <laughs> That's so, that'd be funny if your boss came in and was like, what did you guys do to fix this thing? Yeah, like, exactly. I <laughs> uh, wonder if you could do it to the other motors. They're gonna need, they need to tune up. That's hilarious. Right, yeah. So you could have died maybe <laughs> twice at QED. Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, was wrought with danger. And uh, anyway, the QED, you know, um, one of the guys I worked with, uh, Dave Dickinson, um, kind of designed and created this thing called the Well Wizard. So it was a groundwater sampling pump. So we did a lot of work with landfills in the area, mm. too. And landfills were obligated to uh, test their groundwater all around the landfill to make sure that they weren't polluting groundwater. So yeah. This was a device designed to go down I, into is, those. Sample this is just wells. so interesting to me because I feel like I um, was remote. I was kind of distantly aware that you were doing a lot of this kind of work or that you had done it, 
But it's strange because these are none of this is stuff that people would. Nobody thinks about this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And like all of this stuff are things that make sense and and have to get done. So when you kind of explain it, it actually is, it's actually very interesting to hear. Like you know, you don't want obviously landfills shouldn't pollute groundwater, but how do you actually even do that? It's nobody. You know what I mean? Like right. it, nobody ever thinks about it. So it's just kind of fascinating that you were kind of engaged in this work that has to take place kind of in the background of everything. Yeah. But like nobody ever thinks about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't think about it till I started doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so it's it you know it, it was the kind of things imposed by state and federal rules to uh, part of the Clean Water Act to ensure that um, landfills, as they're designed. Um, maintain the integrity of what would be called their liners so all the trash is put on either a thick clay lined or a synthetic liner or both and the trash you know it naturally degrades over time but uh, mm. it it could release some pretty nasty things um, into the groundwater and, and many older landfills have done that so uh, thus, the need to monitor to make sure that that isn't occurring, because if it occurs, they can figure out how to fix that. So, you know, most landfills will have a dozen to two dozen wells around it, all around the the, the perimeter, if you will. Mm. And, um, you know, we would spend a day or more, depending on how big the landfill was, sampling those wells. So this was a device used to collect a sample uh, that had a lot of integrity to the sample. By that, I mean it wasn't contaminated with the sampling gear. Yeah. Um, it wasn't contaminated by other things in the it air. It was called the Well Wizard or something? The Well like? Wizard. That was it. And uh, That sounds like something Ron Popeil would sell yeah. on like a yeah, exactly. <laughs> like an infomercial well, at 2 in the morning. Well, it was actually a pretty cool device, and it, and it was designed so that each well would have one of these. So you didn't have to lower it in or out. You put it in once, and it stayed there, and it was a pneumatically operated pump that mm. would pulsate the air uh, water up to the surface, and then you'd collect your sample there. And um, it was a pretty nifty device, and we had installed a lot of them in various places. And then because of the nature of the work, I went from being this field guy to kind of an inside salesperson which I didn't really like at all. I actually really hated doing that work. At QED. Yeah, at QED, which really ultimately prompted me to go find this other job. And and, uh, we had used a lab. Well, why didn't you like it? Because this is the other thing that's a little, that's interesting, is you're a very gregarious, sort of extroverted person who I would imagine would like connecting with other people. But like you did, you just didn't like going in. Yeah, the, the in people part and... I liked, but the uh, um, sitting in an office all day I really didn't like. Ah, uh. and uh, so uh, you know it, um, and that just got to be a point where I just didn't, I couldn't tolerate it anymore. It just was really bad, and um, you know we used this lab to do our analytical work, Canton Laboratories. And one day, um, the guy called me up and just said, hey, I'm looking for someone to head up my field crew. I know you've done a lot of work in the field. You know, would you have interest in coming over here? And I'm like, yeah, I would. (laughs) Yeah, I want to get out of an office. And that sounds like the perfect thing. So I moved out of an office and essentially moved into someone's garage. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So the field crew had a big, I don't know, three-car garage. Part of it was turned into an office. 
um, with a space heater in it so that we could stay warm in the winter months. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were five, four guys, uh, myself included, that did all this field work. Um, and a lot of it was... In a garage in Canton, yeah, basically. in a garage in... Actually, we were in Ypsilanti. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure why it was called Canton Labs. We were in Ypsilanti. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, you know, so there was a lot of field work with that, and, and I just spent all day outdoors pretty much uh, going to landfills or going to various sampling projects and continued to do a lot of that um, uh, wastewater work, you know, so we were doing a lot of popping up manholes in and around Detroit. And I just think it's like so that. funny that, like, so many people would have been thrilled to have the opportunity to be like, you know what, I'm going to be sitting in an office finally, this warm office, and not have to go literally deal with raw sewage yeah. <laughs> and go do these sales. And did, you might, I can imagine, did they, did you have a, a, a you know, were you in, well incentivized to do this like sales job stuff? Like most people, you know, some people getting a sales job for a tool that actually solves a real problem would be like really excited. Yeah. And I think it's really funny that you were like, no, I'd rather go work outside in the freezing cold. Yes. Right. And yeah. even though you had almost died already twice, <laughs> <laughs> Well, just the nature of getting out and, and doing that kind of stuff was better than sitting in an office. It just seemed like sitting in an office, the day drags on forever. Now, some of it, like you just described, you know, you meet people, you make a sale, um, you know, that's satisfying and everybody's happy when it occurs. But, you know, <clears throat> I just didn't like sitting in an office the whole day. But there is, you know, I just remembered one other anecdotal tale that I have to tell about my QED days. So when they first hired me, so this is backing up one, one step here back sure. to QED. Yep. Um, I was essentially um, a summer intern, if you will. And that summer, they had gotten a large um, wastewater testing project through uh, the city of Detroit, but it was through another consulting group, Camp Dresser McKee, was uh, kind of the city of Detroit's primary engineering company on what we called Son of Super Sewer. Son of Super Sewer. <laughs> yeah. So this was a, an idea that uh, they had that they were going to install a large wastewater treatment plant discharge into Lake Erie, mm. kind of south of where the Detroit River flows into um, Lake Erie between that mouth and, a, and an area a little further down called Point Moue, which is a um, large diked area that uh, state's trying to return to a natural status. But uh, it, this, this study required that we do a fecal coliform die-off <laughs> study yeah. in the lake to determine if uh, coliform bacteria th was discharged into the lake via this giant son of super sewer discharge how long would it take for that bacteria to die into the in the lake in the lake so bacteria that would live in the sewer and would digest poop basically <laughs> would get discharged into the lake erie and yes. they wanted to know how long before the bacteria died in the lake exactly that's exactly <laughs> So uh, we had several this, meetings. I, I, it sounds it's almost sounds like science fiction sometimes. Yes, like, well, <laughs> and and to you know at the time I was um, between my junior and senior year, 
And, you know, I didn't know much about coliform bacteria or sewers or when you use the word fecal, that always meant poop to me, which is actually what it is. (laughs) So uh, they talked about um, we were going to construct these very large bags, plastic bags that would then we would then spike with the fecal material, pump lake water into the bags as these bags floated in the lake. And that way we wouldn't contaminate all the lake with poop water. We would uh, take our samples from the bags and and um, do a coliform testing on those samples. And over the course of three days, we would see how how long the <laughs> bacteria lived yeah. and not died off. So, uh, And they kept talking about how my role was I was going to spike the bags with the fecal material. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, well, fecal material is poop and I got to... What am I? Am I going to be pooping in the bag? <laughs> and uh, too too uh, bashful to ask that question bluntly. So we had several meetings, and I just imagined that you know at some point there's going to be like a gangplank with a toilet seat at the end of it. I got to go out there and poop into these bags in the lake, you know. And uh, finally, one day I couldn't take it anymore, and I said, okay. How am I spiking the fecal <laughs> material? What? I can only imagine that I'm pooping in a bag. And everybody, of course, found it hysterical. But, uh, you know, actually what we did is we got some um, raw sewage from the Ann Arbor Wastewater Treatment Plant, although I did have to nab that, and we used, <laughs> you know, some buckets. We were pretty well protected, so we didn't get anything on ourselves. Uh, in in uh, face goggles on, you know, a face shield on, so we didn't get splashed by anything. But uh, uh, got this rather nasty looking sewer water, <laughs> and collected several gallons of it that we then used to spike these bags. And we had to deploy the bags. That took like all day to get these bags. We had to pump water from the lake into the bags, and the bags were big enough around that we had like giant truck inner tubes where what were floating <laughs> these things. And we had to mount these orange flags on it so people would see it and not hit them in, uh, you know, while riding their boats around. And uh, we then anchored these things out in about 50 feet of water and filled them up and then spiked them with a known quantity of poop water. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> then I had to, for the next three days, come back. Like, uh, initially it was like every 15 minutes, and then it was a half hour, and then it was an hour, and then it was two hours and four hours and eight hours. And just test this water. Yeah, and, and collect samples that were then taken to the laboratory to be tested. And, um, you know, it was a pretty interesting study, essentially. Ultimately, it showed that the bacteria dies off pretty fast, really. When exposed to sunlight and the environment, that bacteria doesn't last super long. But um, <laughs> it was still <laughs> what a crazy! It just yeah, it's yeah. just a <laughs> t- totally like I said. It sounds like science fiction or something. That like it just sounds like something that like they like with the exception of poop, it sounds like something they would be doing in like an episode of Johnny Quest when they discovered a, <laughs> right. the, the monster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, interesting work, uh, but again, didn't pay much. So. Uh, and when they stuck me in the office, moved on to Canton Labs. And uh, so, you know, Canton Labs was a fun experience uh, as well. It spent a lot of time the first year out in the field all the time working on stuff and did a lot of work with Ford Motor Company and General Motors and all that stuff and all the landfills and throughout Michigan. <laughs> I've got to see much of the countryside from the landfills. <laughs> well, it's the highest point in the state probably. 
mostly. <laughs> yeah. Highest point in the area generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah is the landfill. This is a very flat, swampy state. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I guess that you had so much of experience traveling around the whole state then. I guess I, I just didn't realize that you had done that. I knew that you had done a lot of work in the Ludington area, and I knew that you had done a lot of work in Lake Erie, but I didn't realize that you had done so much work on all these different waterways kind of all over the state and all over the, and all now then in these landfills and stuff. Right. Yeah. So did I've, that, was it mostly lower peninsula? Did you go up yeah, to the Yeah, mostly UP? lower. We did a couple of projects up in the UP, but not, not that often. Uh, we were up there a couple of times, but nothing. No, nothing noteworthy to talk about other than, you know, the UP is, back in those days, was even more desolate than it is now. Oh, man. So. This is hard to believe. Nobody here is listening to this podcast has probably really ever been to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, but it is rather, there's a lot of nothing. Yeah, there's a lot of nothing. <laughs> it's just a lot of. A couple of towns that are noteworthy, you know, Marquette, Sault Ste. Marie, but other than that, there's not a lot of stuff up there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's just nuts. Yeah. But like you, so that's, I know I've asked this question twice already, it feels like, but there's just a lot of, you know, you're describing all the things you're doing and yeah, you get, you, you're outside, but you're not making good money at all and mostly. And uh, you did you I mean did you get a pay raise at all going to Canton Labs or was it pretty much the same? Um, yeah, I would say it was a, if there was a raise, it was very nominal. It was more that I got to get out of the office and get back into doing the field work. So that was the big attractant, not the money. Got it. But over time, I made more money and got a couple of bonuses, which was a unique experience. You know, um, when suddenly you get uh, then the bonus wasn't, you know, it'd be like a thousand bucks. But back then, a thousand dollars was a tremendous amount of money. And like 81 <laughs> probably or something like that. When did you. So you were working at Canton like Labs. More like 84-ish, 85-ish. Got it. Well, so that's. So were you working. I was born in 86. Were you working at Canton Labs then? Yes. So how long were you there then? At Canton Labs? Yeah. About five years. Wow. So you had a, a ten years between the QED, which is when you the where you ran in and they just were like, "Don't go anywhere. We're right. gonna hire you." Yeah. To then, uh, there you ten years doing this stuff. I mean, over that a whole period of time, that's kind of amazing to think about. Right. So that so you started when you were twenty. You were about you were in your late twenties, and in, in eighty six you were thirty. And so that's, when did you leave Canton Labs? Well, I left there, um, you know, they got a general manager in there who was kind of a, in my opinion, a nitwit. And uh, he and I kind of locked horns several times. And over the course of, I don't know, a few months, it just became evident that it, I had to go because I couldn't work with this guy. And uh, Why was, was it, yeah, what was the problem? Because you had been there for some time. What was the yeah. problem with this this guy? Oh, I, I, you know, I'm sorry to describe. He just wasn't a people person mm. and was rather dictatorial on what he told the people in the field to do and the people in the lab to do and what he told the sales staff to do. And by then I was part of the sales staff and he didn't have any background in this kind of work. So his... Really? Yeah. Okay. So he was trying to make demands and set expectations for people that just didn't jive with the reality of our work. So, um, and several people left before I did, you know, for the exact same reason. The man was just intolerable. 
So, um, you know, eventually I realized I had to go. I had an offer from another lab uh, doing the same kind of work. And um, so I said, sure, I could do it and and, and left. And then, um, you know, because I just, like I said, couldn't tolerate this guy. So um, this other lab <laughs> was like out of the frying pan and into the fire because I took this job at this other lab. And the guy who was the owner and general manager of this other lab was an individual who had both physical problems and mental problems. <laughs> and within a very short period of time, I realized, oh, gosh, I got to get out of here, too. <laughs> oh, this man. is just bad news. Well, what uh, place was this? Well, I'm not going to tell you because I don't <laughs> want to get sued for making inflammatory statements about the owner. But they're true statements. Anybody who worked there would, would, would agree with me. But uh, at any rate, it was an uh, environmental lab on the east, northeast side of Detroit. So I had a long haul to get there from Canton anyway, and um, and it was just anxious as hell to get out of here. And one day we noticed an ad in the paper. This is back in the day, by the way, where you went job seeking by looking in the want ads in a paper, <laughs> not by going to uh, you I, know the monster dot com yeah, or. Monster. But I just can't. That seems so nuts. I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah. So it was a slow process, is what it was. And I uh, found an ad for a company based out of Ludington, Michigan, which is. As you know, on the middle of the state on the West Coast, right on Lake Michigan, beautiful part of the state, cool part. And so, you know, I applied. Sure enough, got a call because I had all the experiences they were looking for. And we packed you up as a baby and went up there on an interview um, a couple of times. And they finally offered me a job, but uh, part of the offer was to stay in Detroit to start an office for them company was ASI. Yeah. And um, and then, uh, which, you know, I had wanted to move to Ludington, so that's what I thought we were doing. But, um, you know, but the money wasn't there. They didn't really offer me as uh, uh, enough money. It was mostly, you're going to have a base salary of this, and, oh, yeah, you'll get commission for the work and projects that you bring in. And I'm like, well, what's, so how is that going to work? What What's the commission rate? Well, that depends on the work and stuff. And so it just felt kind of loose. And, uh, you know, we were at a point where I couldn't just leave um, where I was at on this, even though I was desperate to get out of here. But the bottom line is I told the folks, hey, I'll, uh, you know, maybe our paths will cross again, but uh, you just, this isn't enough to get me to come. So thank you, but, uh, you know, no thank you. So, so you told that to the people at ASI. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, was really pretty bummed out because I'm like, I got to get out of this place. I'm going to have to yeah. go find something else. So how was that? But let me ask you this question. How was that potentially different from the same thing you described earlier, which was like leaving Chatham? And I know that like this is what's interesting. Well, the cir circumstances were slightly different. When I left Chatham, I wasn't married. I was just getting married. We had a small, cheap apartment, didn't have any children, didn't have any big bills to pay. Uh, leaving Canton Labs, uh, actually this other lab, leaving the other lab, um, we had a baby, we had a mortgage, we had car payments, and the risk of uh, decline in pay was somewhat entrapping. So, you know, it was just not good to leave and, and suddenly take a pay cut because it would have caused a lot of issue for us financially. Mm. Even though, again, I was quite desperate to get out of there. But, uh, you know, it was like, well, I'm going to keep looking for something here in Detroit area. Then 
Well, you know, sure enough, about a month later, they called back. Maybe it wasn't even a month. They called back and said, okay, here's what, tell us what you want, and, you, you know, we see what we can do. So I told them what I wanted, and they were, okay, we can do that. Let's start it. So, you know, that was how I got on to ASI. Well, then, but so you had left, so, so you left this really shitty job with a manager who was a complete psycho. Um, did you end up... What was the deal? Did you end up doing some commission structure? Or what was the situation for they what they offered you? Like, or what did you ask for, I guess? Because this is what's interesting about... Well, I asked for a base salary that was commensurate with the income I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, commission on top of that. And they just said, okay, well, we'll have to adjust the, your sales quota up from where it had been mm. to accommodate the new base salary range. But you didn't, so, but you didn't, so you were back in this, this is interesting because now twice you've gone into something for field work and then they've ended up steering you towards doing sales. Yeah. And then and on that, this job, basically at ASI, you were building the office, hired to build the office and do sales and bring in projects. Right. Yeah. So how would you even? I mean, that sounds like a shift that you they keep people push keep pushing you into. That's <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, basically it was. And uh, but by then, by this time, I had began to accept the fact that, you know, I would get to do some project work and field work, but you know, my primary focus was going to be selling the work, you know, getting customers, getting projects, and 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 building the office from there. So. You know, that kind of sounded intriguing to me, both intriguing and a little bit scary. You know, could I do this or not build an office from nothing? It really started out with me working at a folding card table in one of our rooms in our house. Yeah, I kind of remember that, I think, very vaguely. Yeah. That there was like a room in the house that that was you had a desk at and that was the whole that was ASI from in Canton, Michigan. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it it grew from there. But, uh, you know, it was a time period where a lot of these regs were being enforced. Um, Industry really needed to get people on board, either consultants or their own staff, to start doing that kind of work. Sewer sampling, air sampling, environmental sampling, you know, waste monitoring, all this kind of stuff was taking place. So it was not simple sales work, but it wasn't grueling. You know, people were generally willing to see you yeah just because they knew they had to do something and And they they, might as well and they probably knew nothing about it and they knew very little so that's okay so that is kind of interesting because i do sales for the day job surprise audience i'm not a professional comic (laughs) um and i just think that's interesting because in the the position that i am in in the sales development we're talking with people who don't they know about a about what they do. They they think they know about what they're doing more than they think you know about what they're doing, and so the challenge is to try to surprise them or shock them with some kind of fact that they don't know to get their right. attention for a moment to then begin to explain what they don't know. But in this circumstance, the role is reversed in the sense that these are all people who are aware that they're going to have to do this, and they don't know a thing about it, and they're more willing to maybe take some time to bring somebody in to educate them a little bit uh, on a decision they know they're going to have to make in the near term, probably. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty good summation of how, it, how that process went. 
So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and, and the other thing is, um, you know, many of these companies, the people who got saddled with the responsibility of environmental or safety compliance was oftentimes like an HR person. Oh, no. Somebody, or, or equally, it could be a custodial supervisor. Somebody who has no, no, no know, degree in this, no got, understanding of any of this. Safety stuff sounded like uh, HR type of duties. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, waste management and environmental stuff sounded like we have a custodial person who handles our waste. <laughs> so we're just going to tag them with it. So, you know, it, it, it was just a, a strange, oftentimes a strange sales call when you'd go in and visit and, uh, and um, you know, it'd be uh, people that either uh, were pretty well educated as often HR managers or management were, or it was custodial staff who's a guy in a shirt uh, with his name on it and a <laughs> uniform kind of thing who's, you know, busy getting rid of the trash every day and uh who's now been delegated this has now been delegated this thing and doesn't know the first thing about oh man um, (laughs) hazardous waste loss which we're all through the resource conservation and recovery act which is a fancy term for this is how you're going to manage your hazardous waste (laughs) oh my gosh so when you so you sat down to build this uh, this office you hadn't done anything like this before uh, you hadn't built out an office before. You had you hired people before? Well, I had hired people before, uh, particularly when I was at Canton Labs. We'd hire more field staff and stuff. So I had the process of interviewing people and determining, you know, if this person was going to work out or not. And I uh, had pretty good success getting staff. You know, it's one of those things, I guess, either you have a knack for it or not. But we looked at, you know, I always had a, um, a list of c- criteria when determining if someone was the right applicant and going to work out for us. And yeah. part of it was technical skills. The other part was just personality. Is this person going to get along with me and vice versa? So, well, so you had, but you had never hired a whole office. No, never hired a whole office. And that's essentially what I had to do. And uh, one of the first people we hired then was an administrative assistant, as, you know. Back in the day, called a secretary. No one's called a secretary anymore. Yeah, I don't think anybody said that word in like 20 years, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so we were looking for an administrative assistant person who was like one of the first people hired at the office. And, uh, you know, I didn't know. And, and at the, by the way, at the same time, uh, desktop computers were kind of getting to be popular. What would even exist on a desk before a desktop computer? Oh, well, uh, a secretary had a typewriter, usually electric, um, and nobody else had anything. And you hand wrote your notes and the secretary would type type them them. up. Jesus. So that's how things got done. There was the flash memo, which was a carbon copy sheet of paper that said memo on the top. You could write a quick note to somebody, tear off the top and have it sent to that person via inner office mail. And that's how you communicated. Uh, and oh then you know, beepers were coming out at that point in time too. So, you know, if somebody needed to talk to you, they'd call up your beeper <laughs> and get a beep and it would get, give you the, I remember number. you had a beeper. Yeah. Yeah. Which but anyway, made, the secretary yeah. came in and we had, uh, we had just gotten a single computer that was set up at the, 
secretary's workstation in this office that we were now setting up. We had a couple, three projects going that I had gotten that were being serviced by staff from other offices. So the main office in Ludington was supplying staff to come down and do this work, but we it was clear that it was going to be enough work. We needed to hire more staff. Mm. First person, let's get a secretary in there. Yeah. So uh, we had this computer. Well, I we'd never had a computer. I mean, we didn't have a computer at home. Computers were, you know, unique kind of things that if you bought one, you hooked it up to your TV so you could play Pong. Yeah. We didn't. <laughs> so, I we didn't even have a computer until I was like eight. Yeah. I think. So I didn't even know how to operate the thing, and uh, the secretary came in, and interviewed, and finally got narrowed it down to one. And she, you know, was um, pretty outgoing. Sounded like she knew what she was doing. Claimed she had lots of computer experience. It was going to be great for us. So she started her first day, and I'm there, and she <laughs> comes in at nine o'clock, and I said, "Okay, here's the computer. Um, you know, you use need, it. <laughs> here, here's a couple of things to get typed up that need to. You know, you can." do it on the computer and everything and then uh you know we were, email was becoming uh use usable then so you know we were going to get connected to our main office and i went back into my office and and then she uh, was out there for a while and then i hear her say hey mike you come out here i don't know how to turn this on <laughs> oh no which was a severe warning flag that all this talk about how you knew how to use a computer probably was BS because she couldn't figure out how to turn it on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, you know, I had to sit there, and over the course of the next week and a half, I had to teach myself and her how to use this computer, <laughs> <laughs> which a lot of long-distance calls to Ludington to clue us in as to what to do. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, it's a good resume builder, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so... <laughs> so ASI is the first company I remember you working for. Was that I remember I rem, and my childhood memories are of you working at that company, and and there was a lot of like growth going on at that company because you guys had the one office and then you opened a second office in the same office park, and there was a lot of like there was just a lot of projects going on. But that were you were you at the time were you still involved in field work at all? Yes, uh, occasionally, selectively, if there was a project I thought was interesting i could get involved i'd go get, you know get myself into it but mostly i was in the office and mostly i was out seeing clients and making sales calls uh and up until the point where i started hiring additional sales staff so i had at our peak i had two uh sales guys working for me who were out beating on doors so so what was your title then were you just office manager or well, what was district manager district manager got it and uh so the district was uh, most of the eastern half uh, of Michigan and the southern half of Michigan into Ohio and Indiana. Got it. Okay. And then we opened an office in Indianapolis, and then we opened an office in, gosh, I think it was in Florida. Oh, so there was a lot. I didn't know ASI was that big. Yeah, and then we opened an office in Kansas City. So how much business was coming through your district then? Oh, mine? Oh, gosh. Any given month, we were we could bill up to a million bucks. Wow, really? The, so, so you were running a well, district? Well, it depends on you know the projects. That Some months could be a couple hundred thousand. Some months could be several hundred thousand. So it would and be... Peak months, it might be a million dollars. So you were probably doing somewhere between five and ten million maybe a year yeah, in the district. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. 
Yeah, it was a significant amount. And at our peak, we had about 21 people there. That you had all you had hired all of them? Uh, most of them, not all of them. Because what happened is then um, uh, the, the ASI became three distinct divisions, and some of the other divisions decided to put people in that office that did not directly report to me. Now, I would have a lot of influence on what they were doing day-to-day or week-to-week, but they didn't technically report to me. Mm. So I my staff was about 15 people. Mm. And then uh, the others made up the balance of the difference. It could be four to six people. So then, so how did you get people? So this is interesting to me as somebody who's hired hired a lot of people too. But like, how do you how did you get people motivated, or how did you find people who were motivated, or what did you do to kind of get that? Because that's a lot of business that that you're sort of in charge of shepherding through the door in one way or another. Right. So how did you get people to kind of work together or find the right people to do, to do that? Well, so my interviewing process, um, you know, I, I, I just went looking for people that I had a sense were self-motivated, mm. you know, were anxious to do the work, were interested in the kind of work we were doing. And then when as I built the staff, I almost always engaged existing staff in the interview process. Mm. And that was done to just see the interaction of the interviewee with the interviewers and get a sense of whether this was a personality mix that would work out. Yeah. And and so, you know, that was I was able to build pretty effective teams that way. I mean, every once in a while you get somebody who's an oddball that does well on an interview, but then in the reality of the long-term <laughs> job isn't really going to pan out. And yeah. So I had a couple of folks I had to dismiss over a course of time. But, but uh, generally speaking... Our success rate with who we hired was quite good. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of what you became famous for, I think, in your career was team team building and hiring really good people. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's you know one of the one of the uh, metrics I used for determining uh, whether someone was going to be good or not in their job was um, if they made me nervous about what they knew. I mean, you know, if by that I mean. They were very competent in their subject area, mm. so competent and so knowledgeable that I knew less than they did. That was like, oh, I think I need to hire that person. Got it. And 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 that's another one of those moments where you kind of have to step out with a little bit of faith and courage because your first inclination is, if I hire someone who's smarter at this than I am, then I'm probably my boss is going to recognize that <laughs> and get rid of me and promote that, which is probably a potential real risk depending on how it's played. But uh, so you know that was another moment where I had to make a conscious effort. To, okay, you know what? I need to hire the best people I can get, irrespective of whether they uh, show me show you up at the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting because I uh, I think. Uh, David Ogilvy has a quote that gets the same guy who created Ogilvy and Mather uh, has a quote where he says something like, uh, "You're, you're. If you hire, if you only hire people who are better than you, you'll create a company of giants." Right. And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, like you don't want to be. I I, I ended up leaving uh, t- two organizations that I was working with because I felt like I was the smartest salesperson in the organization. And I was like, that feels like a major red flag to me. <laughs> <laughs> if I know more about this than the guy who's running this company, I feel like 
But it was weird because I feel like I would hire someone who would know more than me uh, for the same reasons you just described. Like, I, I think that... I, I, it's not that I do, that. Let me back up. It's not that I would feel weird that I knew more than the boss, but I would. I would want. I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. Like I'd rather have a t- room full of people who are also very knowledgeable. Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing to keep in mind is when you hire um, smart staff and people that are highly motivated, is you gotta, you know, you have to keep them challenged. Um, it, within a certain range of challenge, if you will, too much challenge and people kind of get burned out yeah. and leave and not enough and they get bored and leave. So, you know, you have to figure out what that, what that amount of challenge is for yeah. each individual and try to set it so that they're, 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 uh, properly challenged and getting some satisfaction out of, uh, you know, meeting those challenges. So. Well, how did you handle that many? You have 15 direct reports, and uh, this is maybe getting into the weeds for the audience a little bit, but I feel like, how did you manage it? I have eight, and I find that challenging. It is. Oh, it's it's a big challenge. So, you know, what you, so at some moment, you become a personnel manager, not a technical manager. Mm. You're letting the people do the technical work, and, and for me, then I spend a lot of time, um, managing the people part of it and and a lot of that is um you know when it comes like performance review time uh which at that time we were doing twice a year but that's still a lot of people you know you got to sit down and really think through what everybody's done but uh, i met with folks daily on projects you know so when you get when you get to review time you everybody has a pretty clear understanding of where they are and the and the uh, performance review you know, a status, yeah. you know, am I doing well? Am I doing badly? Do I need improvement? Whatever. Most folks understood pretty well where they were sitting and mm. there was rare, rarely any surprises. Um, you know, so, but it does consume a lot of your time. And, well, I just, this is kind of interesting because it may be a good place to, we're nearing kind of the later part of this episode, uh, part two here, and we'll get into, we'll do a part three, maybe even a part four, I guess we'll see. But yeah. You know the so the you you had you did quite well at ASI and you were there for uh, a, a number almost seven years I think right six years something like that yeah about six years and had grown that office had the business had grown you were doing t- five to ten million a year uh, billing almost a million a month sometimes which is kind of nuts to think about and and had brought in, I think, a lot of contracts and people and stuff, but you ended up leaving the company. And not once, you almost le- you le- you ended up leaving, but you almost left once because, and this is a story I'm kind of familiar with because you've told it to me a couple times, but it's you, left, you almost left to go back to school right. and let's kind of check out entirely. And like, I think it's interesting because you told them once, hey, you guys aren't paying me enough, I can't do this. Then they ask you back, and then you ended up almost leaving when I was a baby basically to go back to school and they didn't want you to leave they like real they they really they needed you back basically is the story well yeah so um one of the things that i had um decided was uh you know i I wanted to get back into the technical aspects of the work and uh, not be so much the people manager yeah uh, and I realized that a great education for that would be 
you'd have to have geology and environmental chemistry and air quality and probably some engineering and a whole variety of technical skills to be very good at this kind of work. Mm. And uh, oddly enough, Western Michigan had just created a program. It was a doctor of education in science. And so it, when I looked at the curriculum, it was all of those things. Uh, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the perfect curriculum for this. And so I applied to school there, and they accepted me, and we were going to head there for uh, finish off my master's and then work on getting a P or a EHD or EDD, whatever, uh, whatever the acronym is for the doctor of education. Mm. And um, so your mother and I went out there to Kalamazoo a couple of times scoping around looking for something and she was going to work full time uh, somewhere and I was going to be a full time student and imagine that you'd be at kindergarten there and somewhere and your sister who was newly born would be somebody I would put in you know <laughs> in a little bike trailer and I would bike around bike around campus take her to the child care center there in western <laughs> Michigan and you know that was going to be our lives for the next couple three years and um, your mother was always a little nervous about it. And by the time it was getting real close to really doing it, uh, my work, my boss kept asking me, you know, do you really want to do this? Tell, you know, finally he was like, tell me, tell me what you want for us to keep you to stay. What's it going to take to have us uh, keep you? And uh, at the same time, your mother was just totally panic struck. I mean, all but having a nervous breakdown. And I realized, okay, well, I don't really want to stay, but I'll just, you know, I'll make this outlandish so that they won't do it. And I demanded <laughs> that I get this full-size company car um, at my disposal, that they give me an instant, I don't know, $5,000 bonus, which at the time was a lot of money, although now it's not that much, but at the time it seemed like a lot. And a large increase in pay. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sent that on, emailed back to my boss here. This is what, if you want me, this is what it's going to take. Thinking that, well, that's a, there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> so I come to work the next day and uh, my boss shows up, comes walking right in. And I'm like, oh, what the hell are you doing here? And he's like, well, here's the check. Here's the voucher to go to the car dealer and pick out your car. And here's a copy of the pay raise that I just authorized. And I'm like, oh, swell. I should have asked for a lot more. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's why I wound up staying and not going on to school there. So, Yeah, I just it's interesting to me because I wonder what, what would have happened if you had gone and done that. Or like that, how how that would have played out, but because I remember the Buick, it was a big Buick, I think. Yes, right, yeah, Buick <laughs> Century, which wasn't a monster car, but it was a nice car for us. <laughs> uh, so you went, but you ended up leaving the job, and anyway, uh, sometime later, and getting to work for Park Davis and Warner Lambert, but that was also a more personal personnel management position more so even than asi with technical work am i right about that um when i left asi i went to park davis mm -hmm. and that was still a pretty technical job mm. and uh, but we can save that for part three because there's a um, some other tales about qed at the <laughs> end that are probably worth sharing that uh, will take too much time right at this moment but we'll save that for part three but yeah 
So, what was your favorite? What is the highlight of your career at ASI? Do you think? Hmm, it's a good question. I think the opening and building of that office. You know, like you say, it was um, way out of my comfort zone to start doing that kind of thing, and um, it panned out quite well for quite a while. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility to have all of that. Yeah, but again, you know, if you hire the right people, the responsibility is far less than it appears on the surface. I mean, that's a good point, I guess. <laughs> that you don't have to babysit all of them. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so. All right, well, Dad, we'll finish this up in part three and go on uh, to start talking about th- That one will be later this summer probably because we'll record in, around the 4th of July. Yeah. But Sounds thanks for good. taking the time. All righty.